Um, well, it's really good to be with you this morning. Um, it's crazy to think that the first sermon I ever preached actually was here um, at James, well, Houston Street at the time, and that was 16 years ago. Or it was 16 years ago that I actually left here, so um, I haven't been back on a Sunday morning since then. Um, but it's been, it's really good to be here. Um, I've kept in touch with Dwayne over the years. Uh, him and I still maintain a friendship. If you've interned with Dwayne, I just want you to know that I am Dwayne's favorite intern. Um, he won't admit it, but it's the truth. Um, so, but um, it's good to see some, there's so many new faces here. Uh, it's crazy to me, but there's a lot of familiar faces. Uh, Deanna, Deanna and I, uh, we interned together here when I was 18. And I also, I think I saw Steve and Deanna uh, Harris, and then I saw Nigel somewhere as well. Um, so it's just good to be back with you all and to share God's word with you. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. It's a story that you are probably familiar with, but one that we often need to be reminded of. So Mark 10, 32 to 45. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray again, and then we'll dig into the passage. Mark 10, beginning in verse 32. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the, with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called, called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would open our ears, give us minds to understand, and hearts to receive your words this morning. You have the words of eternal life, and we need to feed upon your words. And so help us now, Lord, in the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 
it's kind of difficult at times when you get a guest speaker and they drop you into the middle of a book um, to really understand what's going on in the passage. And so what I want to do is just begin by giving you a very brief overview of the Gospel of Mark and then also the immediate context of this passage. So a very brief overview of Mark. You could break Mark into two parts. So from chapters 1 all the way to Mark 8, verse 26, you could summarize that whole section as the authoritative ministry of the Son of God, the authoritative ministry of Jesus. That's what the whole emphasis is in those first eight chapters. You see his authority over demons, over sickness, over diseases. His authority in his teaching, right? Over and over again, the crowds say that they were amazed at his authority when he taught. Uh, his authority, of course, to forgive sins. And then from Mark eight twenty-seven, the focus shifts to Jesus emphasizing his own suffering in, and death. He begins to focus on his disciples and begins to prepare them for what is about to come. By Mark 10, he's already making his way toward Jerusalem, where we know that we will, he will ultimately suffer and die. And so the focus goes from his authority as God's son to the focus being the suffering that he will endure as God's son. That's how you could break up the book. Now, in the immediate context, in Mark chapter 10, just before the passage we read, Jesus has taught on receiving the kingdom like a child. That is, helpless dependence. He's also just had the encounter with the, the rich young ruler who was wanting to know what one must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus calls him to give away all that he has to the poor, but of course we know that the man was unwilling. Jesus was exposing this man's heart idolatry. He loved his money more than God and others. He, he wasn't willing to give it up in order to follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to serve the poor because he was enslaved to his false god of riches. And Jesus ends off that encounter telling his disciples that those who have left everything to follow him will receive a hundredfold in this life and the life to come, plus persecutions. And then he ends off that conversation with verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now that's an important statement in thinking about what we're looking at here in verses 32 to 45, because Jesus is going to once again teach his disciples the definition of true greatness according to Christ and the kingdom. And it's utterly contrary to how the world defines and views greatness. And so here in verse 32 to 34, Jesus begins by announcing or predicting his death and resurrection. And so the story picks up with Jesus heading towards Jerusalem, and the disciples are following behind him. And here in verse 32 to 34, Jesus for the third time tells his disciples and predicts his impending death in Jerusalem. Look at verse 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. 
And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days later, he will rise. Now this is the third time Jesus has told his disciples that this is going to happen. The first time was, was right after Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, that is the Messiah, in, in chapters 8, verses 27 to 33. The second time is in Mark 9, 30 to 32. And each time, including this passage, there's a consistent pattern that happens. Jesus predicts his death. The disciples don't get it and begin talking about things that are completely contrary to the mission and suffering of Jesus. And then Jesus responds to them by teaching what it actually means to follow him, what true discipleship is all about. Now in Mark 8, in response to Peter's rebuke, right? Remember, Jesus predicts it, and then Peter actually rebukes Jesus and says, this can't be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things of God upon your mind. Right? Jesus tells his disciples in response to Peter's rebuke that if they want to follow him, they must be willing to take up their cross. That is, they must be willing to suffer, bear the cross as he bears the cross. In Mark 9, Jesus predicts his death, and his disciples begin discussing amongst themselves who is the greatest. And Jesus, of course, responds to their idiocy by teaching them that if anyone would be first, they must be willing to be last and the servant of all. And here in Mark 10, you have the exact same pattern. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples he's going to be condemned to death, mocked, spat on, flogged, and, and, and killed. But three days later, he's going to rise. This is what he's just shared with them. And two of his disciples are so self-focused and so ignorant that all they care about is their place of honor in the glory of Christ's kingdom. And that's what you see in verses 35 to 41. You see two self-consumed, sinfully ambitious, ignorant disciples. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, if you're a parent and one of your kids comes to you saying, I want you to do whatever I ask, you know what he's about to ask is outrageous. That's what's going on here. Now Jesus responds to them, what do you want me to do for you? And in verse 37, we get their self-consumed, ambitious request. Look at verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. In other words, Jesus, give us the highest place of honor in your kingdom. Now, this request is probably stemming from the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, they have no category. The disciples have no category for a suffering Messiah, despite Jesus telling them plainly. 
they probably think that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to reestablish the throne of David and to establish the kingdom of Israel. They're so blinded by their misconception that they have the audacity to make this request to Jesus just after Jesus just spoke about his suffering and death. I mean, just think about it. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm about to be condemned to death, mocked, spat on, flogged, and killed. And then out of left field, James and John goes, hey, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory? See, they're asking that they be first in his kingdom, despite the fact that Jesus, just before this in verse 31, told them, the first shall be last and the last first. You see, they're not simply asking that they make it to glory. That's not good enough for them. It's, it's not enough to simply be with Jesus in glory, but, but we want to be the greatest in your kingdom, apart from you, of course. And so they're self-consumed, they're sinfully ambitious, and we see that they're also ignorant. And we see this in Jesus' response in verse 38. He says to them, you do not know what you are asking. And they don't know. They're completely oblivious. And you see this in the question Jesus asks and how they respond to his questions in verse 38 to 39. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now the cup... And baptism are two metaphors that Jesus uses in reference to his suffering and death. The image of the cup is used throughout the Old Testament to convey God's judgment against sinners. It's the cup of God's righteous judgment. That's why when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, what does he pray? He says, Lord, take this cup from me. That is, take this cup, this cup of judgment from me but not my will, but your be done, yours be done. And though this is also rare, Jesus is using the word baptism here parallel with the word cup, referring to the same reality. Baptism representing his death. So Jesus in his question to James and John is conveying that as the Son of God, he will bear the cup of God's judgment in the place of sinners. He will suffer and die. And so when Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking, are you able to drink my cup and experience my baptism, he's making a connection between his suffering and his glorification. Remember, they are asking that they sit at his right hand and left hand in glory, and Jesus asked them, well, can you bear my cup? Can you share my baptism? In other words, you have to be willing to suffer with Jesus in order to be glorified with Jesus. You see, the pattern in Scripture is clear. Suffering precedes glory. Suffering is a prerequisite to glory. Through the Scriptures, we see this pattern. The cross precedes the crown. The cross is a prerequisite to the crown. In Jesus' own life, 
demonstrates this. He endured the cross, and therefore, after his enduring the cross, was raised up and ascended to the Father's right hand, by which he has been given a name above all other names. So when James and John requests the place of honor at Jesus' right hand and left hand, Jesus is telling them that a prerequisite to that is a willingness to be a participant in his sufferings. Are you able to drink my cup and be baptized with my baptism? You see, to share another's cup was an expression for sharing one's fate. And Jesus is saying, are you able to share in my sufferings? Because that's a prerequisite to share in my glory. And how do James and John respond? Well, they respond with confident ignorance. Confident ignorance. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. We are able. They're completely speaking out of ignorance despite demonstrating confidence. You see, they think that what lies over the horizon is a crown. When in reality, what lies over the horizon is a cross. Now, in response to them, Jesus does, in fact, affirm that they will indeed drink his cup and will be baptized with his baptism. Though they don't fully understand, Jesus is predicting that as his disciples, they're going to share in his sufferings. And not only that, he tells them that to sit at his left hand or right hand is not for him to grant. It's for those whom it has been prepared. Now, how do the other disciples respond to all of this? Because they were there. Well, we see their response in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, this wasn't some holy indignation on the part of the other disciples. They're indignant because they themselves want the place of honor. Remember, it's just chapter 9 where they are already, all of them, arguing about who is the greatest. They have the same selfish ambition as James and John, except they weren't bold enough to ask Jesus. Now, I know it's easy to be hard on the 12 disciples. Their weaknesses and faults are always on full display in the Gospels. But let's remember that often the disciples in the Gospels are meant to convey what all of Jesus' disciples are like. And if we're honest with ourselves, that desire that James and John have, that desire to be in the place of honor, to be seen as great, to be recognized by others, resides in all of our hearts. How often do we want to be spoken well of? How much do we want to be viewed through a certain lens by others? How disturbed or offended are we when when others speak ill of us or view us negatively when in reality they often still view you better than you actually are? We pursue this education or this career or this house or this car so that we can reveal our status in society, to give ourselves worth. There was a recent survey, this was before COVID, 
um, done that revealed that 40%, think about this, 40% of Canadians are living beyond their means, which is leading to insurmountable levels of debt. Now, there's probably a lot of reasons for this, but I have no doubt that one of the reasons for this is due to that sinful desire to maintain a certain status or image in society. How much of our superficial happiness stems from how many likes we get on Instagram or Twitter or how many followers we have on social media? See, we're not so different than the disciples of Jesus who desired worldly greatness and worldly honor and recognition. So it's at this point, Jesus decides to take this opportunity to once again teach his disciples the true nature of discipleship and the true nature of greatness. And here in verses 42 to 45, Jesus defines for us the defines for us what greatness is in the kingdom of God. In verse 42, he calls the 12 to him and says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In order for Jesus to get his point across, he contrasts the conduct of pagan Gentile rulers to the conduct that he expects of his disciples. Now, these Gentile rulers viewed greatness through the lens of who has authority and who is receiving service rather than who is serving. What, what defined greatness in the Gentile pagan world was not being a servant, but rather you had servants. These rulers lived for the place of honor. They demanded adoration from the people. Their greatness was defined by their power and authority. And this is still the thinking of our fallen world today. Nothing has changed. Greatness is defined by power, status, fame, accomplishments, and possessions. This is the way the world operates. And this is the way the disciples are thinking and operating. And Jesus says to them, this must not be so among you. In other words, if you are going to identify with me, you have to get a new definition of what greatness is. See, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there is a whole other way of thinking about greatness. Greatness is not defined by power and strength and fame and status and recognition and accomplishments. It's not defined by how many Twitter or Instagram followers you have. It's not defined by how far up you are in your profession. Greatness in the kingdom of Jesus is defined simply by this. Loving service towards others. That's it. Loving service towards others. As he says in verse 43 to 44, Whoever would be great among you must. You see that word must? This is not an option. 
And whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The greatest in the kingdom of Jesus is the one who devotes her life in the loving service of others. See, if you want to have a greater impact for Jesus and his kingdom, it doesn't fundamentally happen by doing great things for him according to worldly standards. It happens when you choose every day to do the small acts of loving service toward others. It happens when you intentionally look for small ways to serve your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It happens when you look for small ways to serve those God has providentially brought in your path throughout the week. It happens by living less for yourself and living more for others on a daily basis. Quite often I will get members in my church who will ask to meet with me and, and they'll often share with me how they, they feel like they, they aren't doing enough for Jesus, that they, that they haven't accomplished anything for Jesus. And as I begin to pry into what, where, that, where that's stemming from, often what it comes from is, is they are thinking about doing something for Jesus through worldly standards of what greatness is. In other words, I haven't done anything that's left a, a great impact that people see and recognize. And so I often simply ask them, are you serving people? Are you serving people? Oh, yeah, yeah I'm serving people. That should be sufficient. Because according to Jesus, if you are eagerly serving people, regularly going out of your ways to serve people, understand this, you are having, you are doing great things for Jesus whether you feel it or not. So Jesus here tells his disciples that true greatness is seen in loving servanthood. And then in verse 45, he holds himself up as the example to be followed. That is, if it's true of me, it ought to be true of my disciples. Verse 45 for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the, the Son of Man, who has all authority, glory, and power, who is infinite, who is worthy of your worship, allegiance, and devotion, did not come into this world to be served, but to serve. And he did this by laying down his life as a ransom for many. Now there's some very important truths we need to see and understand in this one verse. This verse is actually central to Mark's gospel. Because Jesus here in verse 45 tells us precisely what his mission is. He came to serve. That's his mission. And that service was manifested in him giving his life as a ransom for many. Now there's a few things we need to see here. First thing that we need to see is this. According to what Jesus says here, we need to be ransomed. 
We need to be ransomed. What does Jesus mean when he says that he gave his life as a ransom for many? Well, that word ransom carries with it the idea of deliverance through purchase. Deliverance through purchase. In other words, someone is taken captive, and in order for them to be delivered, freed, a ransom price must be paid. And when that ransom price is paid, the one who was captured and and enslaved is set free, delivered. That's the metaphor being used to describe what Jesus did in his act of service for the world, or as Jesus says, for the many, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. You see, the Bible describes the human race as being captured by sin and Satan, that we are slaves to sin, we are shackled and imprisoned to sin. And the only way for humans to be freed from their sin is by having their ransom paid. And this is why Jesus came, to pay the ransom price. But he didn't pay the ransom price with money. He paid it with his own blood. He paid it by his death because the wages of sin is death. The ransom price was death. You see, the greatest act of service in human history was Jesus laying down his life as a ransom, crucified to a cross, dying for the sins of the world. So that sinners like you and I could be set free, delivered from our slavery to sin, so that our shackles could be broken and we could walk as free men and women under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This was the great act of service by Jesus. And the scriptures tell us that those who repent, that is, turn away from their sins, renounce their sins, and believe upon Jesus, that is, turn towards Jesus, and have these are the ones who have been ransomed by Jesus, delivered by him. We need to be ransomed. Secondly, this verse tells us that Jesus does not need your service. You need his service. Jesus does not need your service, you need his service. He did not come to be served. Why? Because he doesn't need to be served. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from us. You see, the first step in coming to Jesus is realizing you have absolutely nothing to offer him but he has everything to offer you. You need the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. You need mercy and grace. Jesus has compassion on sinners. You need eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. You need your thirst quenched. Jesus has living water to satisfy your thirsts. You need victory over death. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he proved it by rising from the dead. Jesus doesn't need your service. You need his service. You see, if you think the Christian life is fundamentally about serving Jesus... You don't understand Christianity. Christianity is fundamentally about being served by Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for servants. He's looking to be your servant. 
Jesus will be the servant of his people for all eternity. Now, I know you may hear that and think, doesn't that dishonor Jesus if he's our servant? Well, it would dishonor him if what we understand by servant is one who receives our orders and obeys as if we were his master. That would absolutely dishonor him. But if we come to him acknowledging that we're weak and in need of his strength and his service, that honors him. My three-year-old Inez, she will often come to me asking me for help. And then sometimes she will often come to me demanding my help. When she demands that I help her, what is she conveying? She's conveying that she's the boss. She's not honoring me when she speaks that way to me. But when she comes to me and asks for my help, she's acknowledging that I am her superior and she needs the strength of dad to come and help her. And when she does that, she honors me. You want to know how to honor Jesus? Allow him to serve you. Listen, if you will not receive his sacrificial service, you will not be his servant. You remember when Jesus decides to get down to wash the disciples' feet in John 13 and his interaction with the apostle Peter? In John 13, 5 to 9, this is what we read. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That is, he's, he's fulfilling the role of a servant. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. That is, Lord, this is beneath you. You're too great for this, Jesus. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That is, Peter, if you do not let me serve you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Listen, Jesus wants to be your servant because you need his service. If someone came up to you and asked you, who is Jesus? There's a lot of answers that you could give to that question. He's God in the flesh. He's the second person of the triune God. He's the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, the bread of life, the resurrection and the life, the great shepherd, the judge of the universe. All of these would be true and correct. But you know what else would be true if someone asked who is Jesus? He's the servant of his people. He's the servant of of his people, and he serves us in ways unimaginable to us. Let me just list off a few ways in which Jesus serves us. He sustains 
our lives. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The only reason why any of us exist and, the, any, and, and, and why we are still breathing is because the Son of God sustains our lives. He sanctifies us in the truth. We are made holy because of him. He heals our diseases. He forgives our sins. He provides us with food and meets our every need. He bears our burdens. He shows us mercy and grace every moment of every day. He gives us wisdom and understanding for how to live in this fallen, complex world. He disciplines us when we need it. He allows the sun to rise on us. He gives us all good things to enjoy. He prepares a banquet for us in the presence of our enemies. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. He protects us from the evil one. He defeats our enemy. He dies for our sins. For as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, I've heard Christians, pastors, churches say things like, don't come to church to be served, but come to serve. And in one sense, it's true. Each of us should come eager to gather with God's people to be the servant of all, not simply to be served. But we should also come with a desire to be served. Each and every Sunday, we ought to come eager, hungry, thirsty to be served by Jesus. If you're not coming to be served by Jesus, you're wasting your time. Come that you may be served by the gracious hands of our Savior. Come that you may be served by his precious words of life that feed your hungry souls. Come and drink from his fountain of living water. Come and let Jesus serve you. Because he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he then, by his service, empowers us then to serve one another. This is why Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom, right? He says, who is the greatest in the kingdom? It's the slave of all. Who is the slave of all? It's Jesus. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom because he's actually the servant of all. He is the one who gets the glory because he is the one who serves like no other. Brothers and sisters of James North, you want to be great? Then live by the example of our Savior who spent his earthly life and who will spend all of eternity serving his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious Son, our Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for all the ways in which he has served us and continues to serve us. And we ask that as your people, you would help us to honor and reflect him as we seek to serve others so that we might be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.